0: The Genome Revolution's Insight On the question of whether traditional social categories of race correspond to meaningful biological categories, the Genome Revolution has already provided us with new insights that go far beyond the information that was available to the first population geneticists and anthropologists who grappled with the issue. In this way, the data provided by the Genome Revolution are potentially liberating providing an opportunity for intellectual progress beyond the current stale framing of the debate. As recently as 2012, it still seemed reasonable to interpret human genetic data as pointing to immutable categories such as East Asians, Caucasians, West Africans, Native Americans, and Australasians, with each group having been separated and unmixed for tens of thousands of years. The 2002 study that by Mark Feldman produced clusters that corresponded relatively well to these categories, and the model seemed to be doing a good job of describing variation in many parts of the world, with some exceptions. In other papers, Feldman and his colleagues proposed a model for how this kind of structure could arise among human populations. Their proposal was that modern humans expanding out of Africa and the Near East, after around 50,000 years ago, left descendant populations along the way, which, in turn, butted off their own descendant populations, with the present-day inhabitants of each region being descended directly from the modern humans who first arrived. Their serial founder model was more sophisticated than that imagined by biological race theorists in the seventeenth to twentieth centuries, but shared with it the prediction that after being established, human populations hardly mixed with each other. But ancient DNA discoveries have rendered the serial founder model untenable. We now know that the present-day structure of populations does not reflect the one that existed many thousands of years ago. Instead, the current populations of the world are mixtures of highly divergent populations that no longer exist in unmixed form. For example, the ancient North Eurasians, who contributed a large amount of the ancestry of present-day Europeans as well as of Native Americans and multiple ancient populations of the Near East, each as differentiated from the other as Europeans and East Asians are differentiated from each other today. Most of today's populations are not exclusive descendants of the populations that lived in the same locations 10,000 years ago. The findings that the nature of human population structure is not what we assumed should serve as a warning to those who think they know that the true nature of human population differences will correspond to racial stereotypes. Just as we had an inaccurate picture of early human origins before the ancient DNA revolution unleashed an avalanche of surprises, so we should distrust the instincts that we have about biological differences. We do not yet have sufficient sample sizes to carry out compelling studies of most cognitive and behavioral traits, but the technology is now available, and once high-quality studies are performed, which they will be somewhere in the world whether we like it or not, any genetic associations they find will be undeniable. We will need to deal with these studies and react responsibly to them when they are published, but we can already be sure that we will be surprised by some of the outcomes. Unfortunately, today there is a new breed of writers and scholars who argue not only that there are average genetic differences— but that they can guess what they are based on traditional racial stereotypes. The person who has most recently made a prominent argument that there is a genetic basis to stereotypes about differences across human populations is the New York Times journalist Nicholas Wade, who in 2014 published A Troublesome Inheritance, Genes, Race, and Human History. The abiding theme of Wade's reporting is the propensity of academics to band together, To enforce orthodoxies, and to be shown up by a band of rebels speaking the truth. He has written on scientific fraud, described the Human Genome Project as a monolith, wastefully spending the public's money, and attacked the value of genome wide association studies for finding common genetic variations contributing to risk for diseases. Wade's troublesome inheritance ran with the theme again, suggesting that a politically correct alliance of anthropologists and geneticists has banded together to suppress the truth, that there are significant differences among human populations, and that those differences correspond to classic stereotypes. One part of the argument has something to it. Wade correctly highlights the problem of an academic community trying to enforce an implausible orthodoxy. Yet the truth that he puts forward in opposition—the idea that not only are there substantial differences But that they likely correspond to traditional racial stereotypes has no merit. Wade's book combines compelling content with parts that are entirely speculative, presenting everything with the same authority and in the same voice, so that naive readers who accept the parts of it that are well argued are tempted to accept the rest. Worse, when compared to Wade's previous writing, in which the rebels speaking the truth were scholars of creativity and accomplishment. He does not identify any serious scholarship in genetics supporting his speculations. And yet, by celebrating those who have opposed the flawed orthodoxy, he implies wrongly that their alternative theories must be right. As an example of the speculations to which Wade gives pride of place, one of his chapters focuses on a 2006 essay by Gregory Cochran, Jason Hardy, and Henry Harpending, suggesting that the high average intelligence quotient. IQ of Ashkenazi Jews more than 1 standard deviation above the world average and their disproportionate share of Nobel prizes about 100 times the world average might reflect natural selection due to a millennium long history in which Jewish populations practiced money lending a profession that required writing and calculation they also pointed to the high rate in Ashkenazi Jews of Tay-Sachs disease and Gaucher disease which are due to mutations that affect storage of fat in brain cells, and which they hypothesized rose in frequency under the pressure of selection for genetic variations, contributing to intelligence. They argued that these mutations might be beneficial when they occur in one copy, rather than the two needed to cause disease. This argument is contradicted by the evidence that these diseases almost certainly owe their origin to random bad luck the fact that during the medieval population bottleneck that affected Ashkenazi Jews, the small number of individuals who had many descendants happened to carry these mutations. Yet, Wade highlights the work on the basis that it might be right. Harpending has a track record of speculating without evidence on the causes of behavioral differences among populations. In a talk he gave at a 2009 conference on Preserving Western civilization. He asserted that people of sub-Saharan African ancestry have no propensity to work when they don't have to. I've never seen anyone with a hobby in Africa, he said, because, he thought, sub-Saharan Africans have not gone through the type of natural selection for hard work in the last thousands of years that some Eurasians had. Wade also highlighted A Farewell to alms, a book by the economist Gregory Clark suggesting that the reason the industrial revolution took off in Britain before it did elsewhere was the relatively high birth rate among wealthy people in Britain for the preceding five centuries compared to less wealthy people. Clark argued that this higher birth rate spread through the population the traits needed for a capitalist surge, including individualism, patience, and willingness to work long hours. Clark admits that he cannot distinguish between the transmission of genes and the transmission of culture across the generations, but Wade nevertheless takes his argument as evidence that genetics might have played a role. I have spent some space discussing errors in Wade's book, because I feel it is important to explain that just because many academics have been engaged in trying to maintain an implausible orthodoxy, it does not mean that every unorthodox heretic is right. And yet, Wade suggests precisely this. He writes Each of the major civilizations has developed the institutions appropriate for its circumstances and survival. But these institutions, though heavily imbued with cultural traditions, rest on a bedrock of genetically shaped human behavior. And when a civilization produces a distinctive set of institutions that endures for many generations, that is the sign of a supporting suite of variations in the genes that influence. Human social behavior. In a written version of A Nod and a Wink, Wade is suggesting that popular racist ideas about the differences that exist among populations have something to them. Wade is far from the only person who is convinced he knows the truth about the differences among populations. At the same 2010 meeting on DNA, Genetics, and the History of Mankind, at which I first met Wade, I heard a rustling behind my shoulder. And turned with a shock to see James Watson, who in 1953 co discovered the structure of DNA. Watson had, until a few years earlier, been the director of the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, at which the meeting was held. A century ago, the laboratory was the epicenter of the eugenics movement in the United States, keeping records on traits in many people to help guide selective breeding, and lobbying for legislation that was passed in many states to sterilize people considered to be defective and to combat a perceived degradation of the gene pool. It was ironic, then, that Watson was forced to retire as head of Cold Spring Harbor, after being quoted in an interview with the British Sunday Times newspaper as having said that he was inherently gloomy about the prospect of Africa, adding that all our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours, whereas all the testing says not really. No genetic evidence for this claim exists. When I saw Watson at Cold Spring Harbor, he leaned over and whispered to me, and to the geneticist Beth Shapiro, who was sitting next to me, something to the effect of, When are you guys going to figure out why it is that you Jews are so much smarter than everyone else? He then said that Jews and Indian Brahmins were both high achievers, because of genetic advantages conferred by thousands of years of natural selection to be scholars he went on to whisper that Indians, in his experience, were also servile, much like he thought they had been under British colonialism, and he speculated that this trait had come about because of selection under the caste system. He also talked about how East Asian students tended to be conformist because of selection for conformity in ancient Chinese society. The pleasure Watson takes in challenging establishment views is legendary. His obstreperousness, May have been important to his success as a scientist. But now, as an 82 year old man, his intellectual rigor was gone, and what remained was a willingness to vent his gut impressions without subjecting them to any of the testing that characterized his scientific work on DNA. Writing now, I shudder to think of Watson, or of Wade, or their forebears behind my shoulder. The history of science has revealed, again and again, the danger of trusting one's instincts, or of being led astray by one's biases, of being too convinced that one knows the truth. From the errors of thinking that the sun revolves around the earth, that the human lineage separated from the great ape lineage tens of millions of years ago, and that the present day human population structure is 50,000 years old, whereas, in fact, we know that it was forged through population mixtures largely over the last 5,000 years. From all of these errors and more, we should take the cautionary lesson not to trust our gut instincts or the stereotyped expectations we find around us. If we can be confident of anything, it is that whatever differences we think we perceive, our expectations are most likely wrong. What makes Watsons and Wades and Harpending's statements racist Is the way they jump from the observation that the academic community is denying the possibility of differences that are plausible to a claim with no scientific evidence that they know what those differences are, and also that the differences correspond to long standing popular stereotypes, a conviction that is essentially guaranteed to be wrong. We truly have no idea right now what the nature or direction of genetically encoded differences among populations will be. An example is the extreme over-representation of people of West African ancestry among elite sprinters. All the male finalists in the Olympic 100-meter race since 1980, even those from Europe and the Americas, had recent West African ancestry. The genetic hypothesis most often invoked to explain this is that there has been an upward shift in the average sprinting ability of people of West African ancestry due to natural selection. A small increase in the average might not sound like much, but it can make a big difference at the extremes of high ability. For example, a 0.8 standard deviation increase in the average sprinting ability in West Africans would be expected to lead to a hundredfold enrichment in the proportion of people above the 99.9999999th percentile point in Europeans. But An alternative explanation that would predict the same magnitude of effect is that there's simply more variation in sprinting ability in people of West African ancestry, with more people of both very high and very low abilities. A wider spread of abilities around the same mean and a hundredfold enrichment in West Africans in the proportion of people above the 99.9999999th percentile point seen in Europeans. Is in fact exactly what is expected, given the approximately 33% higher genetic diversity in West Africans than in Europeans. Whether or not this explains the dominance of West Africans in sprinting for many biological traits, including cognitive ones, there is expected to be a higher proportion of sub Saharan Africans with extreme genetically predicted abilities. So, how should we prepare for the likelihood that in the coming years, Genetic studies will show that behavioral or cognitive traits are influenced by genetic variation, and that these traits will differ on average across human populations, both with regard to their average and their variation within populations. Even if we do not yet know what those differences will be, we need to come up with a new way of thinking that can accommodate such differences, rather than deny categorically that differences can exist and so find ourselves caught without a strategy once they are found it would be tempting in the wake of the genome revolution to settle on a new comforting platitude invoking the history of repeated admixture in the human past as an argument for population differences being meaningless but such a statement is wrong-headed as if we were to randomly pick two people living in the world today we would find that many of the population lineages contributing to them have been isolated from each other for long enough that there has been ample opportunity for substantial, average, biological differences to arise between them. The right way to deal with the inevitable discovery of substantial differences across populations is to realize that their existence should not affect the way we conduct ourselves. As a society, we should commit to according everyone, equal rights, despite the differences that exist among individuals. If we aspire to treat all individuals with respect, regardless of the extraordinary differences that exist among individuals within a population, it should not be so much more of an effort to accommodate the smaller but still significant average differences across populations. Beyond the imperative to give everyone equal respect, it is also important to keep in mind that there is a great diversity of human traits, including not just cognitive and behavioral traits, But also areas of athletic ability, skill with one's hands, and capacity for social interaction and empathy. For most traits, the degree of variation among individuals is so large that any one person in any population can excel at any trait regardless of his or her population origin, even if particular populations have different average values due to a mixture of genetic and cultural influences. For most traits, Hard work and the right environment are sufficient to allow someone with a lower genetically predicted performance at some task to excel compared to people with a higher genetically predicted performance because of the multidimensionality of human traits the great variation that exists among individuals and the extent to which hard work and upbringing can compensate for genetic endowment the only sensible approach is to celebrate every person and every population as an extraordinary realization of our human genius, and to give each person every chance to succeed, regardless of the particular average combination of genetic propensities he or she happens to display. For me, the natural response to the challenge is to learn from the example of the biological differences that exist between males and females. The differences between the sexes are in fact more profound than those that exist among human populations. Reflecting more than a hundred million years of evolution and adaptation, males and females differ by huge tracts of genetic material. A Y chromosome that males have and that females don't, and a second X chromosome that females have and males don't. Most people accept that the biological differences between males and females are profound, and that they contribute to average differences in size and physical strength, as well as in temperament and behavior even if there are questions about the extent to which particular differences are also influenced by social expectations and upbringing. For example, many of the jobs in industry, and the professions that women fill in great numbers today, had few women in them a century ago. Today we aspire both to recognize that biological differences exist, and to accord everyone the same freedoms and opportunities, regardless of them. It is clear from the abiding average inequities that persist between women and men that fulfilling these aspirations is a challenge, and yet it is important to accommodate and even embrace the real differences that exist, while at the same time struggling to get to a better place. The real offense of racism, in the end, is to judge individuals by a supposed stereotype of their group, to ignore the fact that when applied to specific individuals, Stereotypes are almost always misleading. Statements such as, You are black, you must be musical, or You are Jewish, you must be smart, are unquestionably very harmful. Everyone is his or her own person, with unique strengths and weaknesses, and should be treated as such. Suppose you are the coach of a track and field team, and a young person walks on and asks to try out for the hundred-meter race in which people of West African ancestry are statistically highly overrepresented, suggesting the possibility that genetics may play a role. For a good coach, race is irrelevant. Testing the young person's sprinting speed is simple. Take him or her out to the track to run against the stopwatch. Most situations are like this. A New Basis for Identity The Genome Revolution is actually a far more effective force for coming to a new understanding of human difference and identity, for understanding our own personal place in the world around us, than for promoting old beliefs that more often than not are mistaken. To understand the power of the Genome Revolution for undermining old stereotypes about identity and building up a new basis for identity, consider how its finding of repeated mixture in human history has destroyed, nearly every argument that used to be made for biologically based nationalism. The Nazi ideology of a pure, Indo-European-speaking Aryan race with deep roots in Germany, traceable through artifacts of the corded culture has been shattered by the finding that the people who used these artifacts came from a mass migration from the Russian steppe, a place that German nationalists would have despised as a source. The Hindutva Ideology that there was no major contribution to Indian culture from migrants from outside South Asia, is undermined by the fact that approximately half of the ancestry of Indians today is derived from multiple waves of mass migration from Iran and the Eurasian steppe within the last 5,000 years. Similarly, the idea that the Tutsis in Rwanda and Burundi have ancestry from West Eurasian farmers that Hutus do not, An idea that has been incorporated into arguments for genocide is nonsense. We now know that nearly every group living today is the product of repeated population mixtures that have occurred over thousands and tens of thousands of years. Mixing is in human nature, and no one population is or could be pure. Non scientists have already realized the potential of the genome revolution for forming new narratives. African Americans have been at the forefront of this movement. During the slave trade, Africans were uprooted and forcibly deprived of their culture, with the effect that within a few generations much of their ancestors' religion, language, and traditions were gone. In 1976, Alex Haley's novel, Roots, used literature to begin to reclaim lost roots by recounting the odyssey of the slave Kunta Kinti and his descendants. Following in this tradition, Harvard professor of literature, Henry Louis Gates, Jr., has capitalized on the potential of genetic studies to recover lost roots for African Americans. In his Faces of Americans television series and the Finding Your Roots series that followed it, he declares to the cellist Yo-Yo Ma, who was able to trace his ancestry back to 13th-century China, that Gates, as an African American, will never know how that feels but he shows that genetics can provide richly informative insights even for African Americans with limited genealogical records. A new industry, personal ancestry testing, has sprung up to capitalize on the potential of the genome revolution, to form the basis for new narratives, and to compare the genomes of consumers to others who have already been tested. The television programs that Gates has produced have been built around the idea of tracing the genealogies and DNA of celebrity guests, using the literary device of telling the personal stories of famous people to help viewers understand the power of genetic data to reveal features of their family's past about which they could not otherwise have been aware. For example, the programs revealed unknown deep relationships between pairs of guests on the program, shared ancestors within the last few hundred years. They also use genetic tests to determine not only the continents on which people's ancestors lived, but also the regions within continents. As a white person in the United States, with its history of forcible deprivation of peoples of their roots, I feel that everyone, African Americans and Native Americans especially, has the right to try to use genetic data to help fill in missing pieces in his or her family history. Nevertheless, for those who assume that personal ancestry testing results have the authority of science, it is important to keep in mind that many of the results are easily misinterpreted and rarely include the warnings that scientists attach to tentative findings. Some of the best examples come from the industry that sprang up to provide genetic results to African Americans. One company is African Ancestry, which provides customers with information on the West African tribe and country in which their Y chromosome or mitochondrial DNA type is most common. Such results are easy to overinterpret, as the frequencies of Y chromosome and mitochondrial DNA types are too similar across West Africa to make exact determinations with confidence. As an example, consider a Y chromosome type that is carried slightly more often in the Hausa ethnic group than in the neighboring Yoruba, Mendi, Fulani, and Baini groups. When African ancestry sends its report it might state that an African American man has a Y chromosome type that is most common in the Hausa but it is quite possible and even likely that the true ancestor was not the Hausa because there are many tribes in West Africa and no one tribe contributed more than a modest fraction of the African ancestry of African Americans and yet people who have taken these tests often return with the impression that they know their origin the geneticist Rick Kittles a population geneticist who is the co founder of African Ancestry described this feeling, asserting My female line goes back to northern Nigeria, the land of the Hausa tribe. I then went to Nigeria and talked to people and learned about the Hausa's culture and tradition. That gave me a sense about who I am. Whole genome ancestry tests, in theory, have much more power than tests based on Y chromosomes and mitochondrial DNA. But at present, Even whole genome methods are not good enough to provide high-resolution information about where the ancestors of an African-American person lived within Africa, in part because of the databases of present-day populations in West Africa are not complete enough. Much more research needs to be done to make it possible to carry out studies like these with any reliability. For African-Americans... Another frustration may be that the cultural upheaval that occurred after African slaves arrived in North America has been so enormous that today there are few differences among African Americans with respect to the places in Africa from which their ancestors came. Africans from one part of the continent were traded around and mixed with those from another, with the result that within a few generations the great cultural diversity and variation of ancestry that existed among the first slaves were blurred to the point of unrecognizability. The nearly complete homogenization of African ancestry that occurred was evident in an unpublished study I carried out in 2012 with Kasha Britz, who analyzed genome-wide data from more than 15,000 African Americans from Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Mississippi, North Carolina, and the South Carolina Sea Islands, and tested if some African American populations were more closely related to particular West Africans than others, as might be expected based on the heterogeneous supply routes for U.S. slaves. It made sense to expect some differences. Of the four big slave ports, New Orleans was supplied mostly by French slave traders, whereas Baltimore, Savannah, and Charleston were supplied mostly by the British, drawing from different points in Africa. But what we found is that the mixing of the West African ancestors of African Americans has been so thorough that we could not detect any differences in the African source populations for mainland populations. Only in the Sea Islands off South Carolina did we detect evidence of a particular connection to one place in Africa, in this case to people of the country of Sierra Leone, the place of origin of the language with an African grammar still spoken by Gullah Sea Islanders. It will take ancient DNA studies of first generation enslaved Africans to actually trace roots to Africa. The problem with the results sometimes provided by personal ancestry testing companies is not limited to African Americans. It is a more general pitfall that stems from the financial incentive that such companies have to provide people with what feel like meaningful findings. This is a problem even for the most rigorous of the companies. Between 2011 and 2015, the genetic testing company 23andMe provided customers with an estimate of their proportion of Neanderthal ancestry allowing them to make a personal connection to the research showing that non-Africans derive around 2% of their genomes from Neanderthals. The measurement made by the test was highly inaccurate, however, since the true variation in Neanderthal proportion within most populations is only a few tenths of a percent, and the test reports variation of a few percentage points. Several people have told me excitedly that their 23andMe Neanderthal testing result put them in the top few percent of people in the world in Neanderthal ancestry. But because of the test's inaccuracies, the probability that people who got such a high 23andMe Neanderthal reading really do have more than the average proportion of Neanderthal ancestry is only slightly greater than 50-50. I raised this problem to members of the 23andMe team and even highlighted the problems in a 2014 scientific paper. Later, 23andMe changed its report to no longer provide these statements. However, the company continues to provide its customers with a ranking of the number of Neanderthal-derived mutations they carry. This ranking, too, does not provide strong evidence that customers have inherited more Neanderthal DNA than their population average. Not all the findings reported by the personal ancestry companies are inaccurate, and many people have obtained what for them is satisfying information from such testing especially when it comes to tracing genealogies where the paper trail runs cold. One example is adoptees seeking their biological parents. Another is tracking down extended families. From my own perspective, though, I do not find this approach to be satisfying. In preparing to write this book, I considered whether I should send my DNA to a personal testing company, or study it in my own lab, and then describe the results in imitation of the approach taken by many journalists covering the fields of personal ancestry testing. But honestly, I am not interested. My own group, Ashkenazi Jews, is already overstudied. I am confident that my genome will be much like that of anyone else from this population. I would much rather use any resources I have to sequence the genomes of people who are understudied. I am also worried about the intellectual pitfall of self-study. I am innately suspicious of scientists who are hyper-interested in their own family or culture. They simply care too much. In my own laboratory, there are researchers from all over the world, and I encourage them, not always successfully, to choose projects on peoples not their own. For me, the approach of using the genome as a tool to connect myself to the world around me through personal links of family and tribe seems parochial and unfulfilling. What the genome revolution has given us, though, is an even more important way to come to grips with who we are, a way to hold in our minds the extraordinary human diversity that exists today and has existed in our past. The problem of understanding the connections between self and the world is a central one for me, and has driven my lifelong interest in geography, history, and biology. Ironically, for a person like myself, who is not at all religious, It is an example from the Bible that provides me with insight into how the genome revolution might be able to help solve this existential problem. Every year on the holiday of Passover, Jews sit around the dinner table and recount the story of the exodus from Egypt. The Passover holiday is important to Jews because it reminds them of their place in the world and encourages them to draw lessons about how they should behave. This narrative has been extraordinarily successful as measured by the fact that it has sustained Jews in their identity for thousands of years as a minority living in foreign lands. The Passover story begins with the myth of the patriarchs in ancient Israel, the first generation of Abraham and Sarah, the second of Isaac and Rebekah, the third of Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah, and the fourth generation of twelve male children, the forefathers of the tribes of Israel and a daughter, Dinah. These people are too removed from the huge populations of today to seem meaningfully connected to the present. The literary device that connects this ancient family to the multitudes that follow is Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, who was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, and who rises to a position of great power. When a famine strikes the land, the rest of the family also migrates to Egypt, where they are welcomed by Joseph despite the earlier crime they had committed against him. Four hundred years pass, and their descendants exponentially multiply into a nation, numbering more than six hundred thousand military-age men, and an even larger number of women and children. Under the leadership of Moses, they break their bonds of oppression, wander for dozens of years, and work out their code of laws. They then return to the promised land of their ancestors. After reading the Passover story, Jews intuitively understand how within their population, numbering millions of people, they are related to each other and the past. This story allows Jews to think of those millions of co-religionists as direct relations, and to treat them with equal respect and seriousness, even if they do not understand their exact relationships. To break out from the trap of thinking of the world from the perspective of the relatively small families we were raised in, For me, the multitude of interconnected populations that have contributed to each of our genomes provide a similar narrative that helps me to understand my own place in the world and to avoid being daunted by the vast number of people in our species, the immensity of the human population numbering in the billions. The centrality of mixture in the history of our species, as revealed in just the last few years by the genome revolution, means that we are all interconnected and that we will all keep connecting with one another in the future. This narrative of connection allows me to feel Jewish even if I may not be descended from the matriarchs and patriarchs of the Bible. I feel American even if I am not descended from indigenous Americans or the first European or African settlers. I speak English, a language not spoken by my ancestors a hundred years ago. I come from an intellectual tradition, the European Enlightenment. Which is not that of my direct ancestors. I claim these as my own, even if they were not invented by my ancestors, even if I have no close genetic relationship to them. Our particular ancestors are not the point. The genome revolution provides us with a shared history that, if we pay proper attention, should give us an alternative to the evils of racism and nationalism, and make us realize that we are all entitled equally to our human heritage. 12. The Future of Ancient DNA The Second Scientific Revolution in Archaeology The first scientific revolution in archaeology began in 1949, when the chemist Willard Libby made a discovery that would transform the field forever and win him the Nobel Prize eleven years later he showed that by measuring the fraction of carbon atoms in ancient organic remains that carry 14 nucleons instead of the more common 12 or 13, he could determine the date when the carbon first entered the food chain. On Earth, the radioactive isotope carbon-14 is mostly formed through the bombardment of the atmosphere by cosmic rays, maintaining the proportion of all carbon atoms of this type at a level of about one part per trillion. During photosynthesis, plants pull carbon out of the atmosphere and change it into sugar. From there, it gets integrated into all the other molecules of life. After a living thing dies, half the carbon-14 atoms decay into nitrogen-14 within 5,730 years. This means the fraction of all carbon atoms in ancient remains that have 14 nucleons decreases in a known way enabling scientists to determine a date for when the carbon entered a living thing, as long as the date is less than about 50,000 years ago. Beyond that, the fraction of carbon-14 is too low to make a measurement. Radiocarbon dating transformed archaeology, making it possible to determine the true age of materials, going beyond what was possible by studying the layering of remains. The discoveries that archaeologists made were profound. In Before Civilization The Radiocarbon Revolution and Prehistoric Europe, Colin Renfrew described how radiocarbon dating showed that human prehistory extended much further back in time than had previously been thought, and described how the radiocarbon revolution overturned the assumption that all major innovations in European prehistory were imports from the Near East. While farming and writing were indeed of Near Eastern origin, innovations in metalworking, and monumental constructions, such as the building of megaliths, like those at Stonehenge, were not derived from ancient Egypt or Greece. These findings, and many other discoveries about the true age of ancient remains, sparked a new appreciation for indigenous cultures everywhere. The penetration of radiocarbon dating into every aspect of archaeology is evident from the more than one hundred radiocarbon laboratories that provide dating to archaeologists as a service and also from the fact that one of the basic skills serious archaeologists learn in graduate school is how to critically interpret radiocarbon dates. Radiocarbon dating has even changed archaeologists' yardstick for time. The ancient Chinese measured years since emperors ascended the throne, the Romans since the mythical foundation of their city, and the Jews since the date of the creation of the world according to the Bible. Almost everyone today denominates years before or after the supposed birth date of Jesus. For archaeologists, time is now measured as the number of radiocarbon decay years before present, B.P., defined as 1950, the approximate year when Willard Libby discovered radiocarbon dating. The radiocarbon revolution transformed the discipline of archaeology into one that by the 1960s was no longer only a branch of the humanities and instead now had equally strong roots in the sciences, with a high standard of evidence now required to support claims. Many additional scientific techniques were adopted by archaeologists in the period that followed, including flotation to identify ancient plant remains and study of ratios of atomic isotopes beyond those of carbon to determine the types of foods peoples and animals ate and whether they moved across the landscape in their lifetimes. The rich new suite of scientific tools that archaeologists now had at their disposal made it possible for them to analyze the sites they excavated in ways that had not been possible for earlier generations of archaeologists, and to arrive at insights that were more reliable. It is tempting to view ancient DNA as just one more new scientific technology that became available to archaeologists after the radiocarbon revolution, but that would be underestimating it. Prior to ancient DNA, archaeologists had hints of population movements based on the changes in the shapes of ancient skeletons and the types of artifacts people made, but these data were hard to interpret. But by sequencing whole genomes from ancient people, it is now possible to understand in exquisite detail how everyone is related. The measure of a revolutionary technology is the rate at which it reveals surprises, and in this sense, Ancient DNA is more revolutionary than any previous scientific technology for studying the past, including radiocarbon dating. A more apt analogy is the 17th century invention of the light microscope, which made it possible to visualize the world of microbes and cells that no one before had even imagined. When a new instrument opens up vistas onto a world that has not previously been explored, everything it shows is new, and everything is a surprise. This is what is happening now with ancient DNA. It is providing definitive answers to questions about whether changes in the archaeological record reflect movements of people or cultural communication. Again and again, it is revealing findings that almost no one expected. An Ancient DNA Atlas of Humanity So far, the ancient DNA revolution has been highly Eurocentric. Of 551 published samples with genome-wide ancient DNA data as of late 2017, almost 90% are from West Eurasia. The focus on West Eurasia is a reflection of the fact that it is in Europe that most of the technology for ancient DNA analysis was developed, and it is in Europe that archaeologists have been studying their own backyards and collecting remains for the longest period of time. But the ancient DNA revolution is spreading, and has already produced several startling discoveries about human history outside of West Eurasia, most notably about the peopling of the Americas and of the remote Pacific Islands. As technical improvements have now made it possible to get ancient DNA from warm and even tropical places, I have no doubt that within the next decade, ancient DNA from Central Asia, South Asia, East Asia, and Africa will reveal equally great surprises. The product of this effort will be an ancient DNA atlas of humanity, sampled densely through time and space. This will be a resource that I think will rival the first maps of the globe made between the 15th and 19th centuries in terms of its contribution to human knowledge. The atlas will not answer every question about population history, but it will provide a framework, a baseline, to which we will always return when studying new archaeological sites. There is every reason to expect an avalanche of major discoveries from ancient DNA over the coming years as this atlas is built. One of the key frontiers that has hardly been touched by ancient DNA is the period between 4,000 years ago and the present. The great majority of samples studied so far have been older, but of course we know from the written record as well as from archaeological evidence that more recent times, the period of the development of writing, Complex stratified societies and empires have been extraordinarily eventful. The corpus of ancient DNA data, even in West Eurasia, is like a highway overpass still under construction and ending in midair, not quite connecting the populations of the past to those of the present. Using DNA to address what happened in this period will surely add to what we know from other disciplines. To bridge the last 4,000 years, to connect the past to the present, it is not sufficient to simply collect ancient DNA data from recent periods. The statistical methods that have worked so well for studying the earlier periods break down when examining data from more recent times. In particular, the methods based on four population tests owe their power to measuring the proportions of ancestry from populations that are highly differentiated. The very different ancestries act like tracer dyes, whose changing proportions can be tracked. However, in Europe, where we have made most progress in the ancient DNA revolution so far, we know that by 4,000 years ago, many populations were already highly similar in their ancestry composition to those of today. For example, in Britain, we know that beginning after 4,500 years ago, with people who buried their dead in association with wide-mouthed bell beaker pots, ancient Britons harbored a blend of ancestries very similar to that of present-day Britons, Yet it would be a mistake to conclude from this that the people of Britain today are descended without mixture from the beaker folk. In fact, Britain's population has been transformed by multiple subsequent waves of migration of continental people, who were genetically similar to the people associated with beaker burials. New, more sensitive methods are needed to determine how much ancestry in Britain derives from later waves. To address this challenge, statistical geneticists are developing a new class of methods that make it possible to track mixtures and migrations, even of populations that are highly similar in their deep ancestral composition. The secret is to focus on the recent shared history of the analyzed populations, instead of the ancient shared history. When a sufficiently large number of samples are analyzed together, It is possible to find segments of the genome in which pairs of individuals share close ancestors over the last approximately 40 generations. And by focusing on these segments of the genome, we can learn what happened in human history over this time frame, roughly 1,000 years. With the small numbers of samples that have been available in ancient DNA studies so far, these methods have not been particularly useful because it is only the rare pair of individuals who are closely enough related. To share identical long stretches of DNA. But as the number of individuals for whom we have ancient DNA increases, the number of pairs that we can analyze in order to detect relatedness increases according to the square of the number of samples. At the rate at which ancient DNA data are now being produced, it is reasonable to expect that within a few years, a single laboratory like mine will be producing genome wide data from thousands of ancient people a year. This will make it possible to provide a detailed chronicle of how human populations have changed over recent millennia. The power of this approach can already be seen in the 2015 study, The People of the British Isles, which sampled more than 2,000 present day individuals from the United Kingdom, whose four grandparents were all born within 80 kilometers of one another. The study found that the British population was very homogeneous by conventional measures. For example, the classic measure of genetic differentiation between two British populations, is about 100 times smaller than the same measurement of population differentiation comparing Europeans to East Asians. Despite the homogeneity, however, the authors were able to cluster the British population into 17 crisply defined groups by searching for groups in which all pairs of individuals have elevated rates of recently shared genetic ancestors. Plotting the positions onto a map, they observed extraordinary genetic structuring, which has persisted despite the fact that people have moved back and forth continually over the British countryside over the past millennium, a process that would have been expected to homogenize the population. The boundaries of the clusters mark out the border between the southwestern counties of Devon and Cornwall, the Orkney Islands off the north coast of Scotland, a largely undifferentiated cluster crossing the Irish Sea, reflecting the migration of Scottish Protestants to Northern Ireland within the last few centuries, and within Northern Ireland, two distinctive and barely mixing clusters, which surely correspond to the Protestant and Catholic populations, divided by religion, and hundreds of years of enmity under British rule. The success of this analysis, performed only on present-day people, gives hope for extending the approach to samples that are more ancient. In my laboratory, we already have generated genome-wide data on more than 300 ancient Britons. Co-analyzing them with present-day Britons, including those from the People of the British Isle study, we expect to be able to connect the dots between the past and the present in this one small part of the world. Ancient DNA studies with large numbers of samples also offer the promise of being able to estimate human population sizes at different times in the past, a topic about which we have almost no reliable information from the period earlier than the invention of writing, but which is important for understanding not just human history and evolution, but also economics and ecology. In a population of many hundreds of millions, such as the Han Chinese, a pair of randomly chosen people is expected to have few, if any, shared segments of DNA within the last forty generations, because they descend from almost entirely different ancestors over this period. By contrast, in a small population, like the indigenous people of Little Andaman Island, who have a census size of fewer than one hundred, all pairs of individuals are closely related, and will show evidence of relatedness through many shared segments of DNA. Measuring how related people are has been used to show, correctly, that the size of the population of England in the last few centuries has averaged many millions. In ongoing work, Pierre Palomera and I have demonstrated that the same approach can be used to show that early farmers from Anatolia, of around 8,000 years ago, were part of much larger populations than the hunter-gatherers from southern Sweden who were their contemporaries as expected based on the higher densities that can be supported by agriculture. I have no doubt that applying this approach to ancient DNA will provide rich insight into how populations changed in size over time. Ancient DNA's Promise for Revealing Human Biology Ancient DNA, in principle, has just as much insight to offer about how human biology has changed over time as it does about human migrations and mixtures. And yet, while the power of ancient DNA to reveal population transformations has been a runaway success, so far the insights into human biology have been limited. A key reason is that to track human biological change over time, it is important to be able to study how mutation frequencies change. But this requires hundreds of samples. And to date, the sample sizes of ancient DNA have been relatively small just a handful from each cultural context. What will happen once we have genome-wide data from a thousand European farmers living shortly after the transition to agriculture? Comparing the results of a scan for recent natural selection in these individuals to the same scan performed in present-day Europeans should make it possible to understand whether the pace and nature of human adaptation has changed between pre-agricultural times And the time since the transition to agriculture, it might even be possible to determine whether natural selection has slowed down in the last century due to medical advances that allow individuals with genetic conditions that would have prevented them from surviving and having families to live and procreate. Examples of such medical conditions include poor eyesight, which can now be fully corrected with spectacles, or infertility which can now be corrected by medical interventions, or cognitive challenges, which can now be controlled by medication and psychotherapy. It is possible that this change in natural selection is leading to a buildup of mutations, contributing to altering these traits in the population. The power of ancient DNA to track the rate at which the frequencies of biologically important mutations have changed is important. Not just because it offers the possibility of tracking the evolution of specific traits, but also because it provides a previously unavailable tool that we can use to understand the fundamental principles of how natural selection proceeds. A central question in human evolutionary biology is whether human evolution typically proceeds by large changes in mutation frequencies at relatively small numbers of positions in the genome, as in the case of pigmentation or, by small changes in frequencies, at a very large number of mutations, as in the case of height. Understanding the relative importance of each type of adaptation is important. But addressing this question is made more challenging when the only tool available is analysis of people, all of whom lived in a single window of time. Ancient DNA overcomes this obstacle, the time trap of only being able to study the present. Ancient DNA research also reveals pathogen evolution. When grinding up human remains, we sometimes encounter DNA from microorganisms that were in an individual's bloodstream when he or she died, and so were the likely cause of death. This approach proved that the bacterium Yersinia pestis was the cause of the 14th to 17th century CE Black Death, the 6th to 8th century CE Justinianic Plague of the Roman Empire, and an endemic plague that was responsible for at least about 7% of deaths in skeletons from burials across the Eurasian Steppe after around 5,000 years ago. Ancient pathogen studies have also revealed the history and origins of ancient leprosy, tuberculosis, and in plants, the Irish potato famine. Ancient DNA studies are now regularly obtaining material from the microbes that inhabit us, including from dental plaque and feces providing information about the food our ancestors ate. We are only just beginning to mine this new seam of information. Taming the Wild West of the Ancient DNA Revolution The speed at which the ancient DNA revolution is moving is exhilarating. The technology is evolving so quickly that many papers being published right now use methods that will be obsolete within a few years. Ancient DNA specialists are multiplying. For example, my own laboratory has already graduated three people who have founded their own ancient DNA laboratories. A major trend is specialization. The pioneers of ancient DNA spent a large portion of their time traveling the world to remote locations, talking with archaeologists and local officials, and bringing back unique remains that they had then analyzed in their molecular biology laboratories. Travel to exotic places and a gold rush to obtain key bones are central. To this way of doing science. Some in the second generation of ancient DNA research have adopted this model, but others, including myself, travel far less and instead spend most of our time developing expertise in improved laboratory techniques or statistical analysis, obtaining the samples we study through increasingly equal partnerships with archaeologists and anthropologists. Ancient DNA laboratories will also become more specialized. At present, we who are working on ancient DNA have the privilege of doing research on populations from all over the world and from a wide range of times. We are like Robert Hooke, turning his microscope to describe an extraordinary array of tiny objects in his book Micrographia, or like explorers in the late 18th century, sailing to every corner of the globe. But we have at best a superficial knowledge of the historic, and archaeological and linguistic background of any topic we work on. And as knowledge grows, a deeper understanding of each region and the specific questions associated with it will be needed to make progress. Over the next two decades, I expect that ancient DNA specialists will be hired into every serious department of anthropology and archaeology, even history and biology. The professionals hired into these roles will be specialized in studying particular areas, for example, Southeast Asia or Northeast China and their research will not flit from China to America to Europe to Africa as mine does today. Ancient DNA will also go the way of specialization and even professionalization when it comes to setting up service laboratories, analogous to the service laboratories that exist for radiocarbon dating. Ancient DNA service laboratories will screen samples, generate genome-wide data, and provide reports that are easily interpretable much like those currently provided by commercial, personal, ancestry testing companies. The reports would determine species, sex, and family relationships, and reveal how newly studied individuals relate to individuals for whom there is previously reported data. The researchers submitting the samples will receive an electronic copy of the data to use in any way they wish. The whole process shouldn't cost more than twice what radiocarbon dating does. Service laboratories will proliferate, but researchers analyzing the data to study population history will never be entirely replaced. Archaeologists interested in learning about ancient populations using DNA will always need to partner with experts in genomics if they wish to use the technology to address any question that has subtlety. Getting information about sex, species, family-relatedness, and ancestry outliers from ancient DNA will eventually be routine, but deeper scientific questions that can be accessed with ancient DNA data, such as how populations mixed and migrated, and how natural selection occurred over time, are unlikely ever to be addressed adequately through standardized reports. The future for ancient DNA laboratories that I find appealing is based on a model that has emerged among radiocarbon dating laboratories. For example, the Oxford Radiocarbon Accelerator Unit processes large numbers of samples for a fee and uses this income stream to support a factory that churns out routine dates and produces data more cheaply, efficiently, and at a higher quality than would be possible if its scientists limited themselves to their own questions. But its scientists then piggyback on the juggernaut of the radiocarbon dating factory they have built to do cutting-edge science such as the study led by Thomas Higgum that clarified the record on the demise of Neanderthals in Europe, showing that they disappeared everywhere within a few thousand years of contact with modern humans. This is also the model that I learned when I was a post-doctoral scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, at one of the half-dozen sequencing centers that carried out the brute force work for the Human Genome Project, funded by large data production contracts from the U.S. National Institutes of Health. The center's leader, my supervisor, Eric Lander, also took advantage of the fact that he could turn the power of his sequencing center to address scientific problems that intrigued him. This is my model, too, to build a factory and then to commandeer it to answer deep questions about the past. Out of Respect for Ancient Bones I first went to Jerusalem when I was seven years old, taken there by my mother along with my older brother and younger sister. We stayed that summer, and the next, in an apartment that my grandfather owned in a poor, ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, populated by men dressed in long black kaftans and women in layered, modest dresses and headscarves. The boys attended morning-to-night religious schools, but on Friday afternoons, before the Sabbath, they were dismissed early and often joined political demonstrations. During the protests, they sometimes set fire to dumpsters and pelted policemen with stones. I remember watching the boys running, cloths pressed to faces, eyes streaming from the tear gas lobbed at them by the police. Some of these protests were in response to excavations in the city of David, a site that spills down the hillside of the Temple Mount south of the old city of Jerusalem and covers much of the area that became the capital of Judea after about three thousand years ago. The protesters were upset that the excavations would disturb ancient Jewish graves, an ever-present possibility when digging in Israel. For the protesters, the opening of graves, whether by accident or for scientific investigation, was desecration. What would those protesters think of what my laboratory is doing now, grinding through the bones of hundreds of ancient people every month? Perhaps they would not care much about samples from outside Israel but I think the issue is more general, and I have found myself reflecting more and more about opening up the graves and sampling the remains of any ancient human. It is likely that many of the people whose bones we sample would not have wanted their remains to be used in this way. One argument that some ancient DNA specialists and archaeologists have made is that most of the skeletons we are studying are from cultures so remote in time That they have no traceable connection to peoples of the present. This is the standard encoded in law in the U.S. Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which states that remains should be returned to Native American tribes when there is evidence of a cultural or biological connection to present day peoples. However, this standard is now breaking down, as exemplified by the approximately 8,500 year old Kennewick man skeleton and the approximately 10,600-year-old spirit cave skeleton that are being returned to tribes, despite having no clear cultural or genetic connections to specific groups living today. As we study skeletons that draw ever closer in time to the present, it is important to think about the implications of modern claims on ancient samples. Ancient remains are the remains of real people, whose physical integrity we should perhaps only violate If we have good reasons. In 2016, I decided to ask a rabbi, in this case my mother's brother, for counsel. He is Orthodox, which means that he follows the intricate rules specified in the Jewish oral tradition. I had a hope that he might be open to my question, as he has also been an advocate for adapting Orthodox Judaism as much as possible to the modern world, while abiding by the constraints of its fixed rules a movement of inclusivity that has been called Open Orthodoxy. Most recently, he set up a religious seminary to train women as Orthodox rabbis, a role from which women in that community had previously been excluded. I told him that in my lab we were grinding through the bones of ancient peoples, many of whom might not have wanted their remains to be disturbed, and that I felt I had not thought enough about this. He was obviously troubled and asked me for some time to think. Afterward, he came back with the judgment a rabbi gives to provide guidance when there is no precedent set by earlier decisions or judgments made by other rabbis. He said, all human graves are sacrosanct, but there are mitigating circumstances that make it permissible to open graves, as long as there is potential to promote understanding, to break down barriers between people. The study of human variation has not always been a force for good. In Nazi Germany, someone with my expertise at interpreting genetic data, would have been tasked with categorizing people by ancestry, had that been possible, with the science of the 1930s. But in our time, the findings from ancient DNA leave little solace for racist or nationalistic misinterpretation. In this field, the pursuit of truth for its own sake has overwhelmingly had the effect of exploding stereotypes, undercutting prejudice and highlighting the connections among peoples not previously known to be related. I am optimistic that the direction of my work, and that of my colleagues, is to promote understanding, and I welcome our opportunity to do our best by the people, ancient and modern, whom we have been given the privilege to study. I see it as our role to midwife ancient DNA into a field that is not only the domain of geneticists, But also of archaeologists and the public to realize its extraordinary potential to reveal who we are. This concludes the reading of Who We Are and How We Got Here Ancient DNA and the New Science of the Human Past by David Reich. Copyright 2018 by David Reich and Eugenie Reich. This book was read by John Lesko. This unabridged recording was published by arrangement with Brockman, Incorporated, and was produced in 2018 by Blackstone Publishing, which holds the copyright. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Publishing. If you would like to obtain a monthly update telling you about new releases, call 1-800-SAY-BOOK. That's 1-800-729-2665. For a complete listing of our titles, visit our website at www.downpour.com. Thank you.